Good morning, everyone. Um, lovely to see you all. Um, yeah, I hope you can see me, and I'll do my best to make myself heard this morning with our electricity uh, challenges. But uh, the Lord needs no electricity to move in power, does He? Amen. So, as Tom mentioned, we are continuing on our series looking at Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, last week really was an introduction to that series. And this, this morning we begin in earnest by diving into the Old Testament and beginning to learn about this great Savior of ours from the Old Testament Scriptures. So, uh, if you will please turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 5 to 8 together. Uh, really, that set of scriptures is, is going to set the scene for what I, I want to say to you today. And, and after we've set the scene in Genesis chapter 6, we're then going to move into the book of Hebrews. And we're going to look at a single verse in the book of Hebrews, verse 7 of chapter 11. So if you want to go and put a finger in, in Hebrews chapter 11... Uh, that'll save you a bit of time just now as well. Uh, I'd like to welcome those of you who are here as guests this morning. Um, I, I can't really uh, see who's a visitor or not, but if you are here uh, for the first or second time, and maybe you're here as a guest of a member of Church on Main, maybe you're not even a regular churchgoer, uh, I just want to say you're very welcome here. I know sometimes it's a little bit awkward the first you, time you, you come to a church of this nature, and we're all singing and raising our hands, and it can seem a little strange, but I ask you to just hear me patiently this morning. Take a deep breath and just enjoy your time with us. And I'm going to try to explain to you why it is that we love this Jesus Christ the way we do. And I trust that the Lord will speak to you. Um, one of the, the great theological recoveries that Martin Luther made in the 16th century, which brought about the Reformation was that we are saved entirely by faith in Jesus Christ. We are not saved in any way by any good works of our own, and we are certainly not saved by any sacraments of the church. And it was while reading the book of, of Romans that Luther rediscovered from the Scriptures itself that, and I quote from Romans chapter 3, verse 28, that man is justified by faith, apart from the deeds of the law. And what spectacularly good news that is for us, uh, because each of us would have no hope without that piece of news, because we, we have not obeyed the deeds of the law. And yet, this principle does raise a very important question, which is this. If it is through faith that we are saved, then what exactly is saving faith? And that may be a slightly more complex question than you initially may think. And it was for this very reason that Jesus told a certain parable one day of a sower who went out to go and sow his seed. And indeed, Jesus even said that that parable of the sower was the key to understanding all of the other parables. And in that parable, Jesus speaks of a certain type of person who receives the message of the gospel and appears to have saving faith. 
But as time goes by and as the temptations of the flesh and as the persecutions and trouble for the sake of the word come to that person's life, they then fall away from the faith and it appears in the end that the person did not have saving faith in the first place. What they had was a temporary faith, an excitement, an emotion, which cannot save. And so, what does genuine saving faith look like? And how can we be sure that we have it? Well, last week I said to you that because God is entirely sovereign, because, as Paul said to the Ephesians, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things. Because that is true, God placed certain people and events into actual human history in order to foreshadow the coming of Christ and in order to foreshadow the gospel message itself. And we're going to look at a a verse that that, uh, speaks of a man in the Old Testament who is a perfect example of such a type, an example of faith and Christ. The Bible holds out the faith of a man called Noah as a type of saving faith in the gospel. And so as we have this question laid before us this morning, what is saving faith? As we look into the book of Hebrews, the writer to the, letter, the, the, writer to the Hebrews says to his, his readers, if you want to know what saving faith is, look at the faith of Noah. And so, by looking into Genesis chapter 6, what we're going to do is we're going to remind ourselves of the state of the world at the time of Noah. And then having set the scene, we will then go into the book of Hebrews and look at that one verse, Hebrews 11 verse 7, and see what it is that we can learn about saving faith from the faith of Noah. Noah was born uh, nine generations after Adam and Eve. And in his day, the Bible says that the world was uh, filled with violence. Incredible picture the Bible paints for us. And in those days, in that, in that 2,000 years before the flood of Noah, God demonstrated to the human race what would become of us without various restraining factors which he has placed in the world in our own day. And there were four factors especially which the Bible talks about that were not in place in the days of Noah which explain the total depravity and violence that the world had descended into. Firstly, God's common grace which restrains the evil of men, which it does today. His common grace was in a measure lifted off the earth in those days. He let the world descend into the chaos in which it descended. Secondly, without the division of nations, which only happened at Babel after the flood, without that division of nations, there was no accountability, inter-nation accountability as there is in our day. Why was Hitler not allowed uh, in history to ascend to the, the power which he sought over the entire world because of the division of nations. Because other nations stepped in and stopped it from happening at great cost. 
So the division of nations is an act of the grace of God. That's what Babel is all about. It's about restraining the evil of men. Thirdly, without a governmental system. There was no government, there was no laws, there was no punishment, there was no punitive system or policing system in the days of Noah. Those have been put in place by God after the flood in order to keep the citizens within a country in check. And then fourthly, and this is the most fundamental way in which God wants to restrain the evil of our hearts as human beings, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit within men was not at work in a large way before Noah as it is in our day through the work of the church. And that is how God fundamentally and eternally will, in fact, restrain the evil into which we have fallen. He wants to come to the evil heart of each one of us and regenerate us. He wants us to be born again. Where he takes out a heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh so that we begin to live righteously from the inside out. And that is what's promised in the gospel to each one of us if we will accept Christ. But without those four restraining factors in the days of Noah, the human race had turned the world into a bloodbath. This is how Romans, uh, sorry, this is how Genesis chapter 6 describes those days. From verse 5, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What an incredible indictment upon the state of man. But in case the devil tempts you pridefully to think of yourself more highly than you ought to, or to think of our generation as if we are somehow better in our hearts than were the people in the days of Noah, please understand this. The only reason that those words don't describe you personally and us as a generation is because in the grace of God, at least three of those four restraining factors is working upon you and upon our generation. You may not be born again, but there are the other three factors in place. God has, in His grace, stepped into human history in order to restrain the evil of man. Such, I'm afraid, was the effect of Adam's sin upon all of us. Listen to the words of King David in the 14th Psalm. This is one and a half thousand years after the flood. And David says that the state of man was still the same in his day. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They've all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And then, of course, another thousand years after that, the Apostle Paul arrives on the scene in the early church. And in his letter to the Romans in the third chapter, he quotes those very words of David in order to describe the entire human race in all time and in all generations. No, my friends, we are totally ruined in sin. And it is only the grace of God which restrains each one of us from descending into the same state in which the people were in the days of Noah. 
Some of you will know the name Gordon MacDonald. Gordon MacDonald was a very famous and successful minister in the United States a couple of uh, decades ago. He had a very successful church. He then was uh, taken on as the, the leader or the head of uh, one of the largest evangelical organizations in the world, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And uh, he was incredibly well-respected internationally. He wrote a number of well-known books. Many of you have read Gordon MacDonald's book, um, uh, Ordering Your Private World. What you may not know is that Gordon MacDonald fell into sin. He committed adultery on his wife and uh, lost his ministry at, at IVC, etc. Interesting thing happened after Gordon MacDonald had fallen... He was restored to the Lord, and one day a group of seminary students were doing a Bible study, and they were working through the study that Gordon MacDonald himself had put together, and they began discussing MacDonald's fall into sin and how it could have happened. And there was a typically sort of entrepreneurial young man in that uh, Bible study, and he decided, well, I'm going I'm to look up Gordon MacDonald in the phone book. I'm going to ask him. So he, he did exactly that. He managed to get hold of Dr. MacDonald. He called him. He said, Dr. MacDonald, my name is so-and-so. I'm a young seminary student. I'd like to take you out for lunch. And Dr. MacDonald said, fine, you can, you can take me out for lunch. And he drove 14 hours. He picked up Dr. MacDonald. They went out for lunch together, and they spent that entire lunch discussing the things of the ministry. And at the end of their time together, this young man plucked up his courage and he took a deep breath and he said, Dr. MacDonald, how did your fall into sin happen? And Gordon MacDonald leant back and he said to this young man, you're a Calvinist, right? The young man said, yes, I'm a Calvinist. He said, so then you believe that there's enough evil in your own heart to destroy the world three times over? The young man said, yes, I do believe that. And MacDonald leaned forward and he said to this young man, I stopped believing that about myself. May I address you this morning as one sinner to another? We must always remember and we must understand that in order to be saved, we're talking about saving faith this morning, what is it? If you want to have saving faith, the first thing you have to admit is that you are sinful, that you're a sinner, that the intent of the thoughts of your heart are only evil continually, but by the grace of God. You know that's true of yourself. You, you know that you are full of pride 24 hours a day. You are selfish 24 hours a day, or you wrestle with the temptation to selfishness. And that's true if you're a Christian and if you're a non-Christian. We thank God that through the gospel, we receive a Savior who forgiveness, uh, forgives us of our sin and gives us of His Spirit so that we may progressively become more holy throughout this life. Again, I, I'm going to ask you to, to hear me patiently this morning. If I'm communicating that in an offensive way or a way in which you think is is badly communicated. Forgive me for my language, please. But we must admit our sinfulness before God if we are to be saved. Verse 6, And the Lord was sorry 
that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't sovereign. That doesn't mean that God doesn't work all things according to the counsel of his will, which he does. And it doesn't mean that he was somehow ignorant of what was going to happen when he first created man. But what it does mean, it presents a mystery to us, which we find throughout the scriptures, that though God is sovereign, that though God does work all things according to the counsel of his will, and though he knows the end from the beginning, yet he is not untouched by the sin of this world and the suffering of this world as it takes place in space and time. It breaks God's heart. So, and, and, and on that point, some of you are experiencing hardship in your life at the moment. You're going through stuff that the person next to you has no idea what you're going through. And your heart is broken as you sit here. Please know this morning that God is not untouched by your heartache, by your grief, grief that you feel. God's heart is for you. He loves you. The wonderful thing about our God and His covenantal faithfulness to us is that He is not grieved in a powerless way. He doesn't just sit separated from you, feeling sorry for you. No, He has chosen to enter covenant with His people by which He says, If you will pray to Me and pour your heart out to Me, I will deliver you and I will comfort you. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But, says the next verse, and that's a very important qualifier in the scriptures, without that little word but, you and I wouldn't exist if it weren't for that word but. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God has an elect people whom he is going to present to his son as a bride. God has a plan of redemption which he has always had. It has never changed and he is simply unfolding that plan of redemption through space and time. And because of that plan of redemption, God graciously, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God graciously spared one man and his family. And because of that gracious sparing of one man, human history could then continue on. Abraham could be born. God could reach Abraham, form a covenant with him, make promises to him. Later on, the nation of Israel could then be constituted. God could form a covenant people. In that covenant people, a man could, David, could be born and he could be raised up onto a throne which God would then make a promise that will be an everlasting throne upon which your son will sit. And then, of course, Jesus Christ, born in the lineage of David, would come and he would take up the throne of David to sit on an everlasting kingdom. The church would then be born and all of the elect from every nation on earth could be brought in to God's family. That's what's happening here with Noah. God is sparing the human race in grace 
so that his plan will succeed of gathering a bride for his son. The point is that Noah was saved by grace through faith, just as we are saved by grace through faith. In fact, uh, the, the, the verse that we're going to look at in Hebrews says this, that Noah became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. We must never separate faith, which saves, saving faith, from grace. You want to know what saving faith is? It is first and foremost a gift of the grace of God. It is a gift to us that we may be saved by it. And so it was, you know the story, God instructed Noah to build an ark. He took a pair of every animal, every kind of animal onto the ark. Then God sent a great flood, a cataclysmic global event that killed every single living creature on the planet except for those who were in the ark. And as you read on in the Bible, through the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, you can hardly avoid noticing that the, the inspired writers of Scripture constantly refer back to the story of Noah and the flood as both an example to us and a warning to us. And it's just such a reference that we find in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 7. And it's in this little verse that God holds up to us Noah's faith as a type of saving faith in the gospel. So let's read that verse together now. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now that's a short verse, but it presents at least three ways in which Noah's faith is a type of saving faith in the gospel. I'm going to tell you what those three ways are in advance, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning looking at these three ways in more detail. Number one, Noah was divinely warned of things not yet seen. And so have we been. Secondly, Noah was moved with godly fear. And so should we be. And thirdly, Noah's faith in God's word saved him. And faith in God's word is what will save us. So firstly, <clears throat> Noah was divinely warned of things not yet seen. Noah had never seen a flood before. Uh, God told him that a flood was coming. He'd never seen anything like that before. In fact, uh, some scientists tell us that it hadn't even rained in the days of Noah. The earth was watered by a mist that came up from the ground. And yet, God told Noah, I am going to judge the earth for its sin. Water is going to break up from the deep under the, 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 the subterranean crevices of the world will be broken open and the pressure of that will force water to come up out of the ground. Water will begin falling from the sky as rain and I will flood the entire earth and I will put to death every living creature. Now, 
Noah had never seen anything like that before in his life. But guess what? He believed God. He believed Him. Do you believe God? Because in the same way, we have been divinely warned of things not yet seen. God has told us that there is a judgment coming upon the earth. On which day, every one of us will give an account to God for our lives. Do you believe that? And God will again destroy the entire world, this time in fire. And on that day, Christ will sit as judge on His throne. And He will separate His people from among the masses before Him. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, those who are not Christ's will be sent into the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And those who are Christ's will be taken into the new heavens and the new earth to dwell with God for all eternity. Now, none of us have ever seen anything like that. I mean, I don't think our minds can contain, can perceive, can imagine the terror and the dread of that day. The Bible says when Christ returns, that those who have rejected Christ will cry out to the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and crush them from the wrath of the Lamb. None of us have ever seen anything like that. And yet, God has said to us, it is coming. Do you believe the gospel message that there is coming a judgment for sin? Secondly, Noah was moved with godly fear. At the end of Genesis chapter 6, if you continue reading through that passage we were working in, after God has given Noah the instruction to build the ark, it makes this comment about Noah. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Noah feared God. He feared God and it moved him. He was moved with godly fear. Which means it caused him to take action. His fear of God caused him to obey. God said, I've warned you that a flood is coming. Now Noah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build an ark. And Noah obeyed God out of godly fear and he built an ark. And you know, the constant scoffing and... Ridicule and laughter and insults of the people of his day as he built this ark day after day and their refusal to listen to his warnings and his preaching that this judgment was coming, none of that dissuaded him. He had such a fear of God, the opinions of people meant nothing to him. Nor did the length of time. God said, I will give mankind 120 years to repent. And they won't repent And when I judge them and I destroy them with the flood, they will be without excuse. Noah was building that ark for 120 years. But that did not numb the sense of urgency and the fear that he felt. He didn't delay his obedience, and nor should we. Though we are mocked and persecuted for our faith and teased... Though the media vilifies the church and Christ and the stands on morality that we make, is that meant to dissuade us from our faith? 
And though we are tempted to procrastinate this decision for Christ and the good that we know we should do because death always seems so far away from each of us, whereas the truth of the matter is you are just one breath away from death. Noah feared God, and so he obeyed God. And in the same way, the Bible describes for us purposefully God's great wrath upon sin. You can't read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation without seeing God's holy, righteous anger against humanity for rebelling against him. And the inevitability of the wrath which will be poured out. Upon all men. You can't miss it in the Bible. Jesus himself spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Now the question is, why? Why is the Bible so explicit about the punishments of hell and the judgment of God? And why did Jesus speak and use language which has become a joke amongst unbelievers? Gnashing of teeth. and They joke about it. Is it because God takes some sick pleasure in scaring people like he's a, like a, a fear monger? He has some twisted delight in it. No. God is good. God is love. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn. God describes his wrath and his judgment to us so that we may be moved with godly fear to obey him. To take action. To flee into Christ for forgiveness. Have you done that? Can we be honest with with, with ourselves this morning? Have you done that? Have you fled into Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins? For many years, I had a fear of God. I, I, I kind of feared hell And God's judgment, I grew up taking myself off to an Anglican church, though I didn't come from a Christian home. And I had enough of the Bible in me to know the threatenings of God's judgment, of His His wrath against sin. And yet, for many, many years, that fear of God did not move me. It didn't move me to obey. I still continued in the things that I wanted to do and the pleasures of this life. Our fear of God must move us to seek refuge in His Son, Jesus Christ, just as Noah and his family sought refuge in the ark. Fear of God must move you to obey. Thirdly, Noah was saved because of his faith. He believed God when God told him that a flood was coming. And he believed God when God told him, Noah, this flood is coming, cataclysmic disaster. But Noah... If you build an ark, you'll survive. And he believed God. Because of this, Noah became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And so it is with us. We are saved when we believe the word of God in the gospel, which says to us that there is a coming judgment upon sin, but if we will flee Into the arms of Christ we will survive that judgment which is coming. Please know this this morning, my fellow sinner, 
You will be without excuse on the day of judgment because God has told you how you can survive the coming judgment. He's told you. If you repent of your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll survive. But this gospel message may very well be seen by you to be a little bit simplistic. You know, when we first hear the radical claim of the gospel that we are saved by putting a humble act of faith in a Savior that we can't see with our eyes, if we just put our faith in Him and ask Him to forgive us, we'll be forgiven of every sinful thing we've ever done. <clears throat> that claim may just seem too simple to you. As if you've got to do something else to be forgiven, to earn your forgiveness somehow. But the, the Bible says it is that simple. It's, it's so simple that a, a five-year-old child can understand it. That doesn't mean it's cheap. It cost Jesus Christ everything to bring that simple message to you. Everything. God took the sins of his people and he laid them on his own son. And he crushed his son. With the full weight of his wrath and judgment for sin. So that those who receive Christ can be forgiven. Because their punishment was taken by another. And I says to you, if you want to survive the coming judgment, you put your faith in the Savior. It's a bit like that strange instruction that God gave to Noah, sorry, to Moses. In the wilderness, when the, the serpents were biting all of the children of Israel... And Moses cried out to God for deliverance. And God didn't say, okay, Moses, you see that sort of bush, that desert shrub over there? Just take some of its leaves and grind it up, make a muti and put it on the snake bites and the people will be healed. No, he gave an extremely strange instruction. He said, I want you to make a bronze serpent and I want you to put it on a pole. I want you to lift that pole up in the camp. And whoever will come and look at that pole will be healed. And guess what? Moses made a pole, made a serpent, put it on the pole, lifted it up, and whoever looked was healed. It is not for you and me, my friends, to question the way in which God has determined for us to be saved. Just like Noah. God said to Noah, Noah, there is coming a judgment. I'm going to judge sin. If you want to survive, here's what you've got to do. You've got to build an ark. This is not a matter for negotiation with God. He has told you how to be saved. You submit to that. If you don't like that, that's your pride. And your pride will send you to hell. God has said, I put the sin of my people on my son. I crushed him for your sake. And I raised him from the dead so that you could be raised from the dead and forgiven. And clothed in his righteousness. Now you simply have to either accept or reject that. Well, Noah believed. And he was saved because he believed. So do you have saving faith this morning? We've learned a lot about saving faith this morning. Do you have it? Saving faith in Christ is an active faith. It, it turns a sinner away from his sin. Has that happened to you? It brings the sinner to the cross. It drives him to his knees. 
The gospel breaks the pride of men. It breaks their self-will. And it causes them to throw themselves wholeheartedly and entrust entirely, entrust themselves to Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness. That's what the gospel does. Have you done that? I can only pray that, that my presentation of the gospel to you this morning is not a stumbling block to you. That somehow you don't like me, you don't like what I wear, you don't like the way I speak. Get past that, my fellow sinner. You must be forgiven. Perhaps there are those of you here today, like those in the days of Noah, who were eating and drinking, enjoying the, the things of this life, until the, the flood suddenly came and took them all away. Maybe you've, you've never really given it much attention in your life, the, the state of your soul. Maybe you've never been confronted the way you have this morning by the demands of the gospel. Well, will you come today, my fellow sinner? Will you come to Jesus today? Perhaps I hear some of you say, Stephen, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things I've done. Well, you're right. I don't know the things you've done. But I do know this. If you will come to Jesus Christ in a humble faith, you will find that 2,000 years ago, God Almighty knew your sin already. And He took that sin and He laid it on His Son. And His Son was abandoned for you. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God abandoned him so that you don't have to be abandoned. I don't care what you've done, my fellow sinner. There is no sin so great that if you will come to Jesus in humility, he will cast you out. The one who comes to me, said Jesus, I will by no means cast out. You need to know that this morning, my friend. The blood of Jesus Christ is strong enough to wash even you clean. Hallelujah. No hope without that. Hallelujah. Will you come to Him today? Not tomorrow. You don't know if there will be a tomorrow for you. Don't procrastinate this thing. Will you come to Him today? He calls you today to the preaching of His gospel. And Jesus Christ, my friend, you'll find, is more precious than anything you can have or gain in this life. What does it profit a man, said Jesus, if he will uh, lose his own soul, though he gains the whole world? What will you give in exchange for your soul? Will you come to Jesus this morning, my, my dear fellow sinner? Will you come to Him this morning? And don't come with anything in your hands. Just come with a humble prayer of faith, asking Him for forgiveness. And Christ will become to you wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and eternal redemption. And God will become your Father You'll be adopted into his family and heaven will be your eternal home. Will you come to Jesus today? I beseech you to. Now to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, 
dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Maybe that you find yourself having grown up in South Africa and heard the message of salvation, perhaps at school, perhaps you um, belong to a traditional church and were urged by parents or peers to go and do confirmation classes to confirm your parents' faith when they baptized you as a child. And you went through it, but never heard that you needed to respond to Christ in faith. Just a pure uh, gospel presentation this morning saying that it's looking to Christ, which causes us to be saved. Like the bronze serpent, seemingly a strange way to get relieved of a snake bite. You just look at a bronze serpent. You look to Christ. You look to Jesus and what He's done to be saved. That's how the Bible says you get saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you've thought what is required of you is to have attended church or to have embraced some religious activity to help others. I want to say the Bible doesn't say that's how you get saved. The Bible says you look to Jesus. You look to Him for your salvation. And... uh, it can, it can feel for some people like that's not enough for me. I need some activity which I will do in order to justify myself. While the Bible says your justification is found in Jesus, you look to Him. So Steve has communicated that wonderfully this morning. And uh, it would be remiss of us to not give an opportunity for people to respond in some way. It may be that for you this matter was settled some time ago. And uh, Steve made reference to the fact that one of the things which can keep us from doing it is pride. We think, now I must construct a better mechanism for me to be acceptable to God. But the example of Noah stands out for us. He found, he, he became an heir of righteousness because he was moved by holy fear because he believed God and put his faith in the saving mechanism which God gave him for him and his family. Something which is seldom seen these days, that uh, men lead their, their families into salvation. Well, I want to say, if we put our trust in the Word, and the Word clearly says that we need to put our trust in Jesus, who is the living Word. I want to give an opportunity for people to uh, look to Jesus this morning, and to look to Him in prayer. Why don't we stand and all have a moment of prayer? And if you find yourself in that place where you're saying, I I, I need to put my trust just purely in Jesus like that, as has been communicated this morning, then we want to help you to do that. It may seem incredibly difficult because mentally you think, well, how is that possible? Well, that's the way God has destined that people would be saved. If they look to His Son, Jesus, who's taken their sins, who's... Uh, suffered on your behalf. He became a substitute. You say, you want a substitute? I want someone who's taken my punishment for me. Well, you look to Jesus. You say, I want someone who's overcome the devil's temptations. 
Jesus overcame. I want someone who's obeyed the Father completely. Jesus has obeyed the Father completely. You look to Him and you find salvation. 